they thought the nightmare was dead. And buried. They were wrong. Jason lives. Happy Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th, part 6. Jason lives. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 1st at a theater near you. Hey everyone, and thank you once again for tuning in to the Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that does deep dives into franchises, one movie in one episode at a time. So before we dive into tonight's episode here, um, so before we get into tonight's episode, a couple quick things. First, we are super excited to bring you this uh, quick little interview we got to do with Tom McGoughlin, director of Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6, in which he breaks some really interesting news uh, towards the end of the interview, which sounded a little bit like a throwaway, uh, but could potentially be some very cool news for any fans of Friday the 13th, which, if you're listening to this, my guess is you probably are. Um, Second, um, our guest this week is A.J. Bowen. You have probably seen him in things like You're Next, A Horrible Way to Die, um, and also movies that I really love like Maidenhead and House of the Devil. He is one of the stars of the new indie hit um, I Trap the Devil. We had some technical issues as we recorded this week. It seemed like AJ's Bluetooth headphones were causing a little bit of feedback whenever uh, Jerry or I would speak. That's the bad news. The good news is one of the best parts of having AJ on the show is you just say a couple words and let him go. Um, It was pretty fantastic. He's been one of my favorites for a long time, and he does all the heavy lifting for us on this episode. So you won't hear, hopefully, too much of that overall. It's a very different episode. Um, The other technical thing we ran into is your idiot host, Mike, that would be me, forgot to hit the record button for the start of the program when we were recording with um, AJ. So... You know, we started over again, and we got a little bit slap-happy and giggly. So when you hear that portion of the interview, it kind of dives right in, um, and it sounds like we're having a little bit of a tickle fest, to be quite honest. So not quite the same smooth, professional opening I'm sure you've all grown so accustomed to. And yes, I'm being a little bit sarcastic and self-depreciating with that. So without any further ado, we present you our interview with Tom McGoughlin, followed by our analysis of Jason Lives with A.J. Bowen. So, hey everyone, thank you once again for joining the pod and the pendulum. Um, we are here actually this week to talk about Jason's, Jason Lives, and you know what? I think we're just going to dive right into it because we have a very special guest right now. We have the director of Jason Lives, Lives with us, Tom McLaughlin. Tom, how are we doing tonight? Doing fine, you guys. How about you? We are doing great, and of course we're here with Jerry. Jerry, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to Tom about this. Uh, so, so yeah, let's just jump right in. Let's get into yeah. it. Yeah, we'll get up the niceties are out of the way. Um, yes. So, you know, you know, first thing, I think the most important thing, Tom, I kind of want to know is where do you stand in the whole, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich or not a sandwich debate? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a, boy, having just had a hot dog tonight for dinner, it's really, actually a vegan hot dog, no less, um, 
So I, I don't know where that falls and what category that is. But I don't know. I, I, I think a sandwich is still, you know, with Wonder Bread and mayonnaise and bologna, and that's that's a sandwich. Anything else is a burger or a dog. There we go. There we so go. We can, I, I agree. We can now continue with this interview. Uh, otherwise, I was going to hang up the hang up in disgust if we were to call it a sandwich. So good to know we're on the same page. Um, actually, one question I did have before we dive deep into the movie, um, you know, reading that you have like a training in um, basically training to be a mime at one point and your dad was a performer as well. I was kind of wondering how that influenced the way you had CJ move as Jason Voorhees in the film. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's hard in any of these things that I've done where there's physical comedy involved or even just uh, something that requires a bit of a, you know, communicating, you know, non-verbally that all of that, you know, both the training and the study, because so much of my, you know, best education came from watching the films of Buster Keaton and obviously Charlie Chaplin and, you know, all the silent, silent great movie stars that, uh, you know, you really kind of got down what that is to do things, you know, without words and let the audience kind of figure out what's going on in the character's head. So, yeah, there was a number of things where, you know, CJ just kind of followed a, a basic, you know, instruction of, you know, how to do that. But, you know, being a uh, former Marine, he had brought to the table that Terminator approach, you know, which I thought was particularly cool. You know, one thing that I've I've always uh, been interested in and just kind of enthralled by is, is the fact that CJ kind of came into the film later on. I mean, you started filming it with Dan Bradley, right? Right, exactly. And when it came to like the approach, I mean, already having your Jason ready to go and, you know, Dan Bradley filming like the, the paintball scenes and all that stuff, you know, after knowing that you could kind of tell that there is slight differences. I'm curious, did your approach change when, you know, CJ came into the picture? Yeah, it did. I mean, just because they're two completely different, both body types and way of, mm-hmm. of moving, you know, where they're kind of like where their center of balance is and, you know, Dan was much more in that sort of, you know, uh, lunge, kind of lunging forward, um, you know, that kind of stalking, heavy-footed mm-hmm. type approach. CJ was much more straight up, you know, as I said, kind of like a like Terminator, unstoppable, mm-hmm. in that he's almost like, a, you know, a walking dead machine. Um, and I never thought of him as a zombie, you know, the, the whole time I'm doing this, I always thought, well, I need to bring back Jason. Let's go old school and do it with electricity like Frankenstein. And, yeah. you know, and once that has happened, you know, the, you're sort of free with what you can do with the movements and things. Uh, but Dan came, you know, with the package of being both the stunt coordinator as well as, as you know, playing Jason. And it was such a short amount of time um, that, you know, yeah, all that was really there was the, the, the paintball thing. And then CJ stepped in when we did the tearing the arm off of the... Uh, you know, the Mr. Macho. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's it's very interesting how different Jason Lives was from A New Beginning. I mean, it went from full-on kind of like sleazy 42nd Street vibe of A New Beginning to full-on, I mean, universal monster greatness of Jason Lives. Was that intentional? And, and was that kind of part of the dialogue that you had with Mancuso and everyone? Um, basically I, I, I was really blessed in that, uh, Frank gave me 
you know, pretty much total control on this, you know, what I wanted to write and then how I was going to direct it and things. The only marching orders were, he said, you know, we screwed up on part five and the <laughs> audience didn't want to see somebody else playing Jason. You know, they want mm-hmm. Jason. And so um, the tone of that movie and things really kind of came from, you know, Danny Steinman, the director, whose background was in those types of movies. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of what he brought to the table. Um, when I came in, I basically said, well, I want to add some humor and I want to, you know, bring things that are a little more movie-ish, you know, you know, much more of a kind of a classic Hollywood storytelling thing and also have the characters be people you like as opposed to, you know, you could hardly wait to see them get killed um, and really try to, you know, do things where, you know, Jason had an agenda, Tommy had an agenda, and it was a question of who was going to win out at the end. Um, so that's a little more traditional storytelling in that regard. I had, this might be an odd question, but when I watch Friday the 13th, I think of like traditional pro wrestling booking and that you have your two characters have a conflict in the beginning. You keep them apart throughout the whole movie. um, And then they come together at the end for their final conflict. Like what sort of other kind of like, there's like so much pop culture in your movie uh, more so than any other Friday the 13th. I think of like the American express card um, that's in there. What sort of like pop culture did you want to infuse into the film when you were coming up? with Jason Libs? I, I have to say it was totally, most of it, unintentional. Mm-hmm. Um, it just is kind of what, what came out. I, um, I did a treatment first um, and just kind of like just let myself go and, and did this treatment. And the treatment is what I handed in. And immediately Frank said, love it. Let's go to, let's go to script. So um, again, it was me spending some more time in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where I was, you know, writing a lot of this, which was right next door to Paramount. And mm-hmm. you know, I've got that, you know, that quirky side of me that loves, you know, creating in unusual places. And that certainly was kind of apropos both for me having made my first movie there, uh, One Dark Night, and then just, you know, having that sort of it's so tranquil and, you know, let my head go wherever it went. So a lot of stuff just came in because I was a guy that did a lot of comedy. Mm-hmm. I also love to, you know, make uh, jokes where the audience provided the punchline, like the, you know, American Express thing, where there would always be somebody that would yell from the audience, don't leave home without it, you know. And I just, you know, went to so many horror movies and, it, and the 80s were a great time for audience participation. So, so many things are sort of designed with, I, you know, I'd love to see somebody come back, you know, with some line when this moment happens. Uh, so that, that was obviously conscious, but yeah, many, many things just kind of was what stream of consciousness were, whatever kind of came out as I was writing. So it were sounds, you ner- oh, go, go ahead. That's no, good. you, Jerry, you, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, were you ever nervous about adding that humor and self-awareness to it? I mean, the, the past films, you know, they had, uh, kind of comic relief here and there, but a lot of them tend to be uh, somewhat cynical feeling. Whereas Jason Liz, I mean, it is so much fun right from the first frame. Were you ever nervous kind of about uh, injecting that into the series? I wasn't nervous. I was terrified. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really thought the fans were going to hate it. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really risking crossing that line of putting kind of 
you know, satiring, you know, uh, the the whole um, slasher genre on one hand, and then, you know, adding those moments like, you know, Jason walking through the circle like James Bond and slashing. And I mean, you know, were they going to go for that? Or is this like not the way you want to see Jason interpreted? And then many of the other things that, you know, with, with, with the sense of humor and breaking the for fourth wall and basically telling the audience, you know, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. And, you know, the first thing that worried me is we actually got good reviews from a lot of the hardcore, you know, bigger critics. And they were saying, gee, I can't hate a movie like this is despite the despicable subject when it is making fun of itself as it as it's happening. So I thought, well, is there going to be a backlash to that with the fans not liking it? But we were all, you know, really, really happy with the reactions that it was getting in the theater. Um, but our box office was hurt considerably by how many people didn't want to even go to another Friday. Mm -hmm. It was going to be Tommy, Tommy Jarvis playing, you know, Jason and not really Jason. Um, so it, it's, it's only over the last 30 something years that it's, you know, really kind of risen up as a lot of people's favorite. And you kind of hit on it as, as I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be a roller coaster ride. I wanted you to, you know, one moment, you know, have a jump scare and the next moment just really love being with this particular character or finding Megan sexy and, you know, whatever, you know, car chase, underwater fight, and then put real children in there, which nobody had done. And, you know, let them think, oh, my God, they're not going to kill kids, are they? So, it, you know, I just wanted to put a lot of different things in that that hopefully the audience would like. But I really wasn't sure if the fans were going to dig it. What do you mm -hmm. think it was about that particular moment in time that made you say, like, OK, it's a little scary to change the character so much and interject this humor. But we think the time is right. What jumped out to you as it being the right moment to do it? Purely because I, you know, the when I got the job, I had only seen part one, which I liked mm -hmm. very much. I, I loved the whole twist, um, you know, being the mother and things when I saw that. Then you got to realize I was a young filmmaker in Hollywood trying to get a job. And I loved horror movies and I loved comedies. And anytime a horror movie came up, it was going to be another variation of a slasher, you know, mm -hmm. put a bag over his head, put a sock on him, do, do something where it's still, you know, a guy <laughs> head covered in the forest, bunch of kids that you don't care about get killed. So. When I was offered it, I thought, okay, I got to see all the other ones and see if there's some sort of mythology or something I can do with it. So I, I sat in the Paramount screening room and watched part one all the way up through part five and went, okay, I get what everybody else has done. Now to do a part six, are we serious here? Do I, I, be ser do I approach this in any kind of serious fashion? And, you know, that voice in my head said, no, you got to have some fun with it and, mm -hmm. and, and kind of let let that be the, you know, the, the one that, you know, does a bit of a turn. And much to my shock, jumping forward, you know, I was sent a script called The Scary Movie uh, by Kevin Williamson. And I read it and I went, no, I've already done this. You know, <laughs> I turned it down. And then after I read a bunch of shitty scripts. I went back to my agent. I said, what happened to that scary movie script? He goes, no, nah, Wes Craven got it. I went, oh, okay, well. Whatever. <laughs> so the but great then what when if. I met Kevin Williamson, you know, many years later, he said, um, I got to tell you, your Friday had a lot of influence on, you know, Scream. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, really? I love hearing that because I turned down Scream. So, <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, you have uh, you have such a, a musical background, I mean, and you're still going with that. I, I'm yeah. curious, uh, was it your idea to incorporate Alice Cooper in the soundtrack and, and do the video as well? I wish I could say it was. We had a lot of different rock music, you know, that I had put in for the temporary thing. Mm-hmm. And then Frank came to me and said, you know, we've been approached by Alice Cooper's record company um, that Alice would be interested in doing a song. And I listened to all stuff on the album. And I said, would he be interested in us taking a few songs? And it was yes. So, I mean, that was, you know, I mean, my only contribution on that was let's put more of it in there, you know, Teenage Frankenstein and Hard Rock Summer, you know, as well as The Man Behind the Mask. Mm-hmm. Um, the big, big irony is back in 65, uh, Alice was in a group called The Naz. And in those days, I knew him as Vincent, you know, which is mm-hmm. his you know, real name and, you know, guy from Texas. And we all hung out at uh, Frank Zappa's house, Canyon House uh, in oh, Laurel wow. Canyon. And we actually played on the same bill at a club called the Cheetah. But to this day, Alice and I have not met each other in person mm. for all these years. Things just keep, you know, happening where we just, you know, he's going to do some show I'm going to go to. Something happens if I don't go to the show or whatever. I'm hoping that, you know, there's an um, oncom- a, a upcoming uh, fright mayor uh, in Texas that I mm. think we're trying to get all of us together for if that all works out because I'm just... You know, I even sing Man Behind the Mask like Alice in, in our rock and roll band, The Sloths. So, I mean, I, I, it's about, I, I can't say how much more close I am to the him and the songs <laughs> and stuff and still have not yet met the man. Mm-hmm. I have I, uh, a, a question. I was doing, in doing some research for the interview, came across an old Fangoria article that said there were originally three cuts of the film. Um, the version you thought the MPAA would let go, like a harder R version, and then a quote-unquote like X or unrated version of the film. Um, obviously, these movies are known for getting kind of cut to pieces by the MPAA. How close to what we see on screen like fits your overall vision of what you thought this should be? Well, we went through nine um cuts with the MPAA, you know, and, you know, it was getting down to just a couple of frames here, a couple Mm -hmm. of frames there. I purposely tried to shoot everything. So it wasn't terribly gory, Mm -hmm. you know, it just, you know, was like, you know, when he, when he squished the the cop's head that, you know, you actually saw the skull break up and see a piece of brain matter in there. And, you know, that got trimmed down to nothing. And then the triple decapitation of the, of the three paintballers, those guys created this an amazing effect how you know it went past all three heads and it saw bodies drop and the heads drop and you know that unfortunately ended up on the cutting room floor and we're just at a point where they just hated these movies and would do anything they could to you know cut them back but the thing at the end of the day that they picked on the most believe it or not is the back bend with the sheriff where mm-hmm. jason pushed back and you hear you know is spine cracking and stuff. They, you know, they went crazy over that. And it's like, there's no blood. It's, you know, it's an old vaudeville trick, you know, with one one person's legs and another person's torso. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. nothing. But they were saying, by the time we get to that, you know, the, the overall is just so intense that that's even worse. And it's like, 
okay, <laughs> I don't know what to say. But none of the, you know, none of the things that I had in there I thought were terribly, you know, XX. I, you know, I knew they were going to pick on it, so I did try to shoot mm-hmm. things a couple of ways. But my first cut was pretty much putting everything in there and then let them start to, you know, chip away at it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and unfortunately, it was, you know, it wasn't like big chunks that were taken out. They were small chunks, and we've yet to find all those little frames, all those little pieces that, you know, were in those sequences. So yeah, those it... are almost lost to history now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh wow. It seems like that's a trend with with the Friday movies. I mean, from your film to uh, Beekler's follow up, it seems like there's oh, always yeah, a lot they, of loss. They beat the hell out of Beekler and 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 you know, the Part Seven. They they really went at that with a vengeance. But I think he had much more intense, you know, kills and, and oh, yeah. you know more of a gore factor in there. Um, and I I wasn't trying to be you know take it back i just wanted the movie to be more dependent on the characters and the story and the you mm-hmm. know the, the laughs and the hopefully you know the surprises of seeing stuff that you haven't seen in a friday before oh totally and it works well uh tom we don't want to take up too much of your time because you do have your screening and uh having seen the film already i mean nightmare cinema is amazing i love that movie but uh oh, great. Speaking on the legacy, I mean, you, you said you kind of ex- you were terrified. You expected fans to kind of like hate the the risks you took, but I mean, all these years later, I mean, do you know? I mean, can you pinpoint kind of what it is that ha- that makes all these fans hold Jason Lives in such high regard? I mean, it is commonly known as one of, if not the best, Friday the Thirteenth film. I don't, you know, I I want to say it's it's less about you know, what I did and more about when people saw it. Um, mm-hmm. Although there's a whole generation that's discovering it now for the first time. And in terms of a fan base, uh, you know, it just builds every year. Um, I, I'm amazed. But I, I think somehow, you know, he's, he's more of a straight ahead monster. And mm-hmm. I obviously come from a great, you know, adoration of the universal monsters and in the 80s, we didn't really realize it, that, but we were kind of creating that new breed of monsters with Freddy and Pinhead and Chucky, you know, and of course, Michael Myers that started the whole thing with the slashers. Um, you know, it, it was just, you know, uh, Leatherface. I mean, there was all these people that seemed like to the public and for the critics in particular, really distasteful. But now they're like, you know, kids have dolls and, you know, it's all it's all kind of cool. And you get these children coming up to me now. They're like seven years old in the Jason outfit, you know, carrying a machete want, that you want that you want autographed. So he's become much more of a, you know, kind of beloved villain. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I guess because mine, you know, sort of dealt more with that kind of fun, somehow that survived. Um, and it's something I learned too from the silent movies. A lot of the movies of that era, you know, are looked at now as being very melodramatic and boring, where the comedies, you know, keep going. And there's something about entertaining people with, with laughs and, and characters that you know have some wit about them, dry humor about them. That you, you know, that doesn't go away. People love somebody that can, you know, think fast and, you know take action and things. So, you know, a lot of that kind of fell, fell into it. Um, and, you know, the, the one thing I can share with you is, I mean, over love, but the last 33 years, I guess it's been, I have been asked so many times about, you know, will I do another one? And I 
keep saying, you know, for years, well, if I can come up with another idea that's fresh, and I, if I can bring something else to it, you know, I'll do it. And, you know, lo and behold, I finally came up with the formula and what I wanted to do in things about six months ago and wrote the screenplay. And of course, now I'm stopped dead in my tracks, you know, with the lawsuit with John Cunningham and, and uh, Victor Miller. So it's like I can't even show it to the studios or any anybody. Oh, jeez. So it's just oh, reaching old. But that's that's the irony is that, uh, you know, it, it took that long for me to come up with something that I went, you know what? I would want to see this movie, you know, and, and as a horror fan and as a Jason fan. And that that was a big thing to me is that I didn't just want to do another one. I wanted to do something, you know, unique with it, but still staying within the structure and still staying within the parameters of what a Friday the 13th is. So what do you think can be done now with characters that we grew up and loved in the 70s and 80s? Like these are our Frankensteins, our Draculas, our Wolfmans. What can be done for modern audiences to keep them relevant um, and to keep them still scary? Well, I obviously want to see tomorrow how Chucky fared, you know, mm-hmm. you know, over, you know, made a whole different looking Chucky. And I'm sure they intensified a lot of things from the way it was back then. Um, Pennywise has become, you know, quite, quite a new icon of, of, a, of a horror thing. And that was obviously, you know, based on something that was television. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you know, a whole new audience discovered it and they did one, one hell of a campaign mm-hmm. to, to put that out before it came and it you know and just the whole idea of it you know really sparked with people so i you know i keep believing that you know somebody will keep coming up with some something unique you know whether it's the you know a clown or a evil child or another type of slasher um that someone will have something about them that somehow feels original again and and unique mm-hmm. and will kind of be you know that you know this generation's monsters um and and you know and you don't really know if something's going to last until you know 10 20 years later are people still talking about it are they still wanting to watch it again um and when when that happens you know you, you just feel so lucky you know that it actually survived definitely uh well tom thank you so much for your time we definitely appreciate it and uh yeah we won't take any more of your time so you can get to your screening but like like we both said like we appreciate it so much oh my pleasure anytime thank you so much tom enjoy the screening and thank you so much for joining us it's really it has been a pleasure to speak tonight um drive safe and you know definitely let you know when this is out so have a great night all right you guys thank you so much thanks tom have a good one Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back again to the Pod and the Pendulum podcast right now. I am your host, Mike Snoolian. I can see Jerry making faces at me right now because this is take two in recording this episode right now. Jerry, how are we doing? <laughs> I'm doing so great right now. <laughs> so we are joined by some guy named AJ Bowen. He's been in some shit you've seen. No, let's Present. have a better than that. AJ you don't need to. In- it's fine. Okay, you can. I, I was in. I, you can, and I was in uh, Creep Show Three. <laughs> the seg- but not the whole thing. I was in the segment. There's a little wraparound that I'm in, but the main segment that I'm in is called the radio. Man, I am like sweating a, right now. It's a high art kind of thing where, like, I I act with an inanimate object the whole movie. Okay, 
For our listeners, I'm just going to dig up the speed real quick. I'm going to dig up the speed real quick, because we're all having fun here. We recorded for a good 12 to 13 minutes, and we just we realized that we weren't recording. So if we're laughing, it's because of that. So, okay. Jason, actually, do you want to do, either? You guys want to do a wrap up? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> thanks so for tuning like, in, guys. We'll see you next. Mike week. doesn't like Mandy. Uh, I don't mean yeah, wrap Mike up the hates whole thing. Mandy. I mean to like, I mean uh, to catch up on what on what everyone missed. Um, Mike hates Mandy. Uh, AJ does talk to Adam Marcus once. Yeah, okay. Cre- Creighton Duke's dialogue in um, Jason Goes to Hell is some of the best dialogue committed to any. Other than, other than Quint's monologue in Jaws, I, I would put Creighton Duke's dialogue <laughs> up there with that, probably. Oh, we've officially gone off the rails. This is great. Oh. Uh, Jason Lives is a good movie, though, too. So It's a very good movie. So, okay, so, so AJ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jason Lives. <laughs> Um, how did I discover Jason lives? Uh, it's a complicated story, man. It's actually not. It's just I run my mouth a lot. So um, I was already infatuated with horror at that time. Um, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Georgia, the suburbs of Atlanta. I was a military brat. And um, my parents were pretty devoutly, I say were, they're still alive. They're still devoutly religious. Um, I am not. Um, and so horror in the 80s, I was not allowed to watch. So I had to catch with my friend. And so I'd already seen Halloween. But the other thing that they did, I'm 41, so this was like the mid-80s. They had like a local TV station on Saturdays, Saturday afternoons. They would play edited versions, like marathons, almost every weekend of horror films. So before Jason Lives came out, I had already seen, I want to say, at least the first four. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that five had gotten there yet. Um, But I had seen the first four like in a marathon and I was obsessed with it. And, um, I didn't, my friend, I don't know why his parents let him have a subscription to Fango when he was eight, but he did. And so we would tear through that stuff and we both ended up in Cub Scouts together. And, uh, this is the guy from the lost, the lost footage that no one will ever hear of us talking. It's my friend. Um, he's been my best friend since 85, 86. And, um, this guy and I went to Cub Scout camp together and we went to a place uh, in Georgia called Camp Daniel Morgan, a, a hard labor state park. And <clears throat> unbeknownst to us until the first night that we were there, it was a, it was like a, an overnight camp, like a two night camp thing. Um, and the first night that we were there, one of the counselors was running around in a hockey mask and it scared the fuck out of me. And um, I was a pretty sensitive kid. Like I wasn't good at staying away from my mom overnight. And um, so I was freaked. And it was around that time while we were at camp that we found out that they had just shot a movie there at this camp that I was camping at, um, that I was going to scout camp at. And that happened. They had wrapped like a week before um, we had gone to camp there and that movie was called Friday the 13th part six, Jason lives. And I was like, I'm at the camp where Jason was and I was losing my shit. And so I saw the movie and there was something about at the time I, I couldn't know, you know, like we all, whenever we developed our love for like horror, it's almost difficult to sort of discuss it because once you get to be our age, it's been part of us, a part of us for so long. But I would say that Jason lives more than 
any other movie was what sort of made me fall in love with horror. Um, and I wouldn't, I didn't know at that age why. And then as I got older and I started making movies and I started learning about films, sorry, it's Red Dawn happening in my backyard. Right now. <laughs> um, the original, um, it's the Russians. Um, I would go back to it and it's, it's funny, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter, so it's really saying something for me to say that I have seen Jason lives more than any other movie. I've seen it more than any other horror film. I've seen it more than any other non-horror film. I've even seen it more than uh, Frozen, which when you have a five-year-old daughter, and I'm not talking about Adam Green, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about (laughs) Anna and Elsa. Fuck them. Um, I'm so happy that another one's coming out that I'll get to hear about in Thanksgiving time. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I know, right? It's awful. And my kid loves horror films, too, but it's like she's just quite... I can't quite show her the stuff, certainly not that I was in, um, that I've been in, and not the older stuff. But I can't wait. That's As a dad, I'm so stoked about showing her some of these things. But Jason Liz is a movie that whenever I'm happy, I put it on. Whenever I'm depressed, I put it on. Um if I'm up late at night and I can't sleep, I put it on. And I, so I have it on VHS. I have it on standard DVD. I have it on uh, Blu-ray. I also, that wasn't enough because when the, when the mood hits for me to watch it, which is, I'm not kidding. It's probably, if I'm being conservative once every couple of months, Mm -hmm. but it's probably more frequent than that. I'll put on for a few minutes. And um, I saw it come on one of the cable channels. And so, I DVR'd that shit, so now I don't have to even go pick up a Blu-ray or anything. Like I just turn, I just turn on my TV, and I'm like, DVR, I'm ready to watch. I'm ready to watch Dad get bent in half. I need that right now. Um, but like what we were starting to talk about um, before you fucked it all up and didn't record. Um, yep. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm I I've been obsessed specifically with that movie because it's such a different film than the rest of them in the franchise mm-hmm. um, in so many ways. And I've been obsessed with Tom for a long time. And I was at a benefit, I got almost two years ago. It's like for hurricane relief, I was at Dark Dells and I was signing. And um, one of my genre famous friends was sitting beside me and I was, we were talking about life. And um, he's, while he, I was in the middle of talking to him, I stopped talking because Tom walked past. And Fred asked me, he's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, no, that's just, that's Tom McLaughlin. He's like, yeah, I know. Do you want to talk to him? And I was like, no, no, I don't (laughs) want to talk to him. No, leave me alone. So Fred basically um, stood up and walked me over like like he was my dad, walked me over to Tom and was like, hey, Tom. And they know each other. And so they're catching up. And he's like, hey, this is is AJ. And uh, I think there's some things that he wanted to talk to you about. And... um, and Tom was very gracious as I proceeded to like give a serious like a book report thesis paper orally about why I think it's a perfect movie, why you know like the choices that he made were so amazing. Um, there's so much that we could talk about, right? I mean, like, which is funny because in terms of the physical Jason, it's one of the least interesting. Once he's mm-hmm. once he's out of the once he's out of the coffin, once he's walking around. Um, the next time to me, and I'm not even 
making a joke about it. The next time to me that he's interesting looking is when the like garbage neck opens up at the end mm-hmm. when the propeller blade hits him and all of a sudden yeah. it's like weird gazpacho comes out of his head. Yeah. Um, so he's pretty visually not that exciting. Um, and it's funny cause like, I've said the same thing to Kane. Like I was like, Kane, I love you. You're, you're what Kane did with the character was Kane's such a gifted actor. And I think a lot of people, when they think about Kane Hodder, they, there, a lot of people aren't aware, um, how, what, what he, his skill set is or how talented he is. And I would disagree with someone that's like, Oh, he just hasn't gotten to show it. I'm like, no, he's showing it. There's just, people aren't, people he's so good at it that people don't know he makes it look easy so they they have no idea um the degree of skill with which he was able to turn something that we were scared of because the movies told us we were supposed to be you know or there would be occasional jump scares and there's something scary about the hockey mask um and the pillowcase but like kane made him scary for the first time as just this thing when you saw him then it's funny because like Beekler didn't have to cut away from him. If you notice in that one, like there's a lot of Jason walking and I'm like, I would have done the same thing because every time Kane, you know, is Jason any moment, it's just, it's terrifying when you just him walking and Jason's not terrifying in Jason lives when he's walking. The thing that's sort of terrifying is some of the stuff that Tom did by finally having kids there, having it be a camp um, when camp's happening. And I think another big part of it for me is that if you're talking about like the principal characters, like I don't even mean just like Tommy and Megan. I'm talking about like if you expand that to court, to pretty much every all of the counselors and and to the sheriff, they all get character arcs. Yeah. Which is very rare for any genre film because you know they can be a bit of especially talking about a slasher they can be especially in the 80s a bit of like meat grinder where what we're watching is the you know the tactile moments of of gore or the scares the jump scares um but you every character is decent in the movie um the opposite of weekend at bernie's in part seven where i want i saw that one too uh with a group of people in a theater and hearing people cheer when you could hear the, uh, the weed or revving up, you know, you were like so excited that he was, that he was, a, that Bernie was about to get it, but you mm-hmm. weren't excited pretty much when anybody got it in Jason lives, you wanted them to pretty much all make it. Even the people that were like, even the people that were at the beginning, sort of like from a, if we're if we're in there with Tommy and we're in there with Megan, then there's people that are assholes in the movie, you know, sheriff and yeah. deputy. They're the antagonists. And even them, you know, like when he says, Megan, don't when she puts the laser on his head, um, you're like, oh, that's a human being. He's not just some douche. And it has one of the best. For me, I didn't understand what it was at the time. One of those like sacrifice moments where someone earns someone earns our time with them as a character by giving themselves up. And especially yeah. now that I have a daughter, um, like that moment gets me so hard because he was one of the only dudes that actually got away from Jason. And I don't know how he did it because everybody's hauling ass trying to run away, but he was the one that was able to run away and just be like, not caught. I don't know if it was his mustache. I don't know what it was, but it's also the opening when you're talking about like you, I, I didn't know at that age 
I didn't know what I was in for at that age when I just suddenly saw Jason as James Bond. Yeah. I was so confused. It's but such a, it, it's, it's such a fun little nod. It lets you know right away you're in for something different. And yeah. I think it prepares you for what, okay, this is what we're going to get. And I think it prepares you. And you're either going to go for that ride or you're going to be like, eh, fuck it. This is not what I'm here well, for. Well, that's that's part of, I think, the magic of the movie. And, and AJ's right. I mean, no, no offense to CJ Graham, but Jason's not spectacularly interesting in this film. It's, it's the surrounding characters that makes that film so great, in my opinion. Well, yeah, no, it's I mean, like, like if you like, I talked to Tom, and I'm, and I'm sure he, you know, I'm sure he mentioned Frankenstein yeah. when you guys were speaking. Um, but when you look at Frankenstein, there are specific moments in that movie where Frankenstein's interesting, but otherwise he's just a dude that walks around. You know, it's mostly other people, and it's, so there's this, it's this, it's almost this plot device, and. And the other, there, there were things that were terrifying to me about Jason in the movie when he punches a hole in Welcome Back, Cotter. Like, mm-hmm. as a kid, when I saw that, I almost shit myself. It was terrifying to me. I was like, "Whoa, he got, he got an upgrade." Horseshack got screwed yeah. up. Yeah, and it just was such an interesting. It also, it not starting with, with the which I always enjoyed the the sort of flashback update you know where they're mm-hmm. like hey because i always now that i'm an adult filmmaker i view it as they were making 75 minute movies and they needed to be able to get them up a little bit longer mm-hmm. cuz they don't they're not it's like they're complex pieces of you know they're they're not really hard it's not like inception like you know what happens jason walks around kills some people and then there's a final girl so i don't they didn't have to do the, Here's what just happened in case you were confused <laughs> about where this movie's going to start. But Tom didn't do that. You know, like it's just them driving and having a conversation. And I love, I'm, I'm actually really happy um, on this side of things that Tom Matthews got to be Tommy for me. I know there's always a back and forth, but it's my, it's, I would say that like my three favorite films are, Black Christmas, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Jason Lives. And I think that it was, I love being a fan of genre for my whole life. It's awesome to see Tom Matthews in that role. And tonally, that he his performance so captures what Tom was doing with the whole film. And I don't think it would have worked with another actor from one of the other ones. No disrespect intended mm-hmm. towards them, but there was just this, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not trying to say that Scream's derivative because clearly it's not. But um, much in the same way that Halloween's not derivative because Black Christmas came before. But what Scream was doing that people that that uh, would you want to call them legitimate film critics or journalists, whatever douches that don't that turn, normally turn their nose up at horror, um, were like Scream's special because it's. It, it's self it's self-aware and i'm like well you know back in 86 10 years before that movie came out you know tom was doing that with friday the 13th i mean look at caretaker some people got a funny idea you know said when he's he's directly turns and looks at the camera he pulls a landis and looks directly at the camera and talks to the audience about about some people's idea of entertainment you know and it was just knew what it was 
even before Jason Lives, like a year before that, you have Fright Night and you yeah. have Return of the Living Dead. And I think two movies that kind of paved the way for audiences to be a little bit more, put their tongue in their cheek a little bit more. And you can still deliver like a really killer movie with that, but also maybe not take yourself so seriously. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned it, like still deliver a killer movie, like threading that needle is so tough, right? Because I've seen it successfully done so few times. Usually something is funny or something is straightforward scary or something is camp or some, you know, like something's sort of like neorealism. Um, it's rare that a franchise does both. I mean, you've got, you've got like, I really love how straightforward and lean the first wrong turn is. And then mm-hmm. Joe came in and, and turn, did a hard right turn to where it's like a totally different vibe, you know, like mm-hmm. modern days, I would say happy, happy death day to you. It's like suddenly it's an entirely different genre of film. Yeah. And, um, and Jason lives. I don't believe that it went that hard. I believe that it was still scary movie. There were still stakes in it. And one of the reasons is that you cared. You didn't want the people to die. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a meat grinder for these characters, you know, like it, it was not very chill every time someone ate it. Unless for me, I always thought it was funny that there was this weird yuppie couple dining at Camp Crystal Lake and then they went to get on a moped and that was funny, but everybody else I didn't want to see die. Mm-hmm. Well, know? it's, it's and, funny because that guy of, of the yuppie couple, I mean, he's such a douche and he's like the typical guy that's like pressing her into sex, but you know, acting like he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, but I find myself saying this every single episode when we when we reference the final chapter. But this, I think the same goes with Jason Lives. If you take Jason out of those movies, you still have very good character, like a good character-driven, almost like coming-of-age kind of film. And I think out of the entire series, final chapter and Jason Lives are the two that really utilize that. The characters yeah. are believable. I was actually saying the same thing. I, this sounds like a joke. I was saying the same thing about Jaws the Revenge. Because if you took the haunted shark out of it, it's like a serious family drama. Yeah. And it's, it's very well acted. It's very well shot until the haunted shark comes in. But what's great about Final Chapter and Jason Liz is that Jason's not a haunted shark. Well, and he doesn't that, roar. Well, that and I mean, you and I, uh, outside of this podcast, have had that conversation quite a few times. I mean, a lot of people aren't familiar with the novelization of Jaws the Revenge. So yes. the haunted shark. I mean, they don't really know that there's like a shaman behind it. So yeah, I mean, you guys gotta have me, have, yeah, have me back on whenever you guys get through Jaws, and we'll I'll talk about Jaws: The Revenge and why. That Absolutely, because awesome. I, I, you know what? I think we have 13 other people that have asked to join that episode. So people <laughs> you should probably let one of them. I think I've I've already talked about it on a podcast for like an hour and a half. I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I have two copies of the novelization. <laughs> I do. Jerry, you come down to LA. I'll show you. All right. Oh, I also have Jason Lives. Um, my kid's mom gave it to me um, as a present. Um, gave me the novelization of Jason Lives, and it was a very, it was very interesting to read the end of it, and to where the idea was that you know that that Jason's dad was going to show up. To me, it was it felt like uh, what they ended up doing with Thorn in in uh, yeah. Halloween Five, the end of Halloween Five. You know, like that. That's what it seemed like where they were going to go. Like, man in black, that's a real bad dude. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the the way that... I mean, he just know right off the jump. Then he gets electrocuted, 
and it's amazing. He's totally decomposed before he gets electrocuted. Yeah. And then when he gets electrocuted, there's worms and he's greasy. They're living on him. And I don't think that that's a mistake. I think that that's an acceptance of the absurdity when you get to six movies in where this guy supposedly can't die, but he's also died a few times. And then the last one didn't even have him in it. Um, it was just, it's accepting this. It's not going as far as farmers did. You know, he's not going to space, but it's like, look, we know that this is absurd, but we want to try. Like my view of it is that Tom took the execution of it incredibly seriously. You know, like there's a lot of Gothic elements Mm -hmm. to Jason lives. And I, I, he probably spoke about that too, but like, visually the story structure the way it all went down and i also ended up going to high school with a couple of the kids that were in that played campers in the movie really yeah i was really pissed at them that they got to be in it because by that time i kind of knew i wanted to be i knew i knew from 1986 that i wanted to be an actor i did not think it was an option and so i didn't pursue it um but i was very jealous of of Justin Knoll, who's like the he has a great line in Jason Lives. He, so what were you going to be when you grew up? Love that line. See, yeah. that's, and, and, that's part of the charm of that yeah. movie. Uh, the kid. I mean, you're, that adds such a terrifying element to it. And as a father, I mean, like you said earlier, rewatching some of these things, they kind of hit harder. I, oh, I remember. Sure. Uh, I think Fantastic Fest 2013 when the Sacrament was premiering. I remember yeah. afterwards, I came up to you and you're like, hey, man, what'd you think? And I was like, man, that's a great movie, but uh, I probably never want to watch it again. I'm going to go call my kids. Like, <laughs> hey, wasn't it bad yet? I actually um, actually made my kid at that fantastic fest. I was so inspired by your conversation, <laughs> by <the> conversation <laughs> that I decided oh to become God. a dad myself. Yeah, oh, I, I I couldn't. There's no way. Like, I can't go back and rewatch Sacrament now. Like, it's too, it's too brutal. Really? So um, now, as, so it's my favorite movie. movie that I've been in. But mm-hmm. but I the the end is a bit. It starts to get to be a bit tough. Mm-hmm. It's a parental thing. Like, it, okay. Well, yeah. I don't I mean, like watching. <clears throat> I can't go back and watch. Is it Alligator? The one where the kid he gets eaten in the pool. Yeah, yeah, alligator. that gives me an. I can't watch that. Hmm. I can't be watching well, kids get eaten. I've softened up like dramatically since having kids. I mean, growing up, you know, I wanted to see faces of death and that kind of stuff. These days, I, I, I can't even bother with that stuff just because it just doesn't sit well with me. Well, also, we're in a period of time, I think, where life, society is kind of going through an ugly spot. Yeah, <clears throat> and kind of don't need to be reminded of how grotesque humans can be um i i need stuff that's a little just for me right now and i'm sure it'll change i just need escapism a bit right now and i think that like i there's always been a part of me that has been into that that's been less into some of the hardcore stuff and by hardcore i mean like for real hardcore i don't mean like i don't mean like anything that would make it out theatrically um but that's why I love movies and, and Jason lives made me fall in love with camp slasher or, or summer slashers and remind me, Jerry, when we get done, I made a summer horror playlist that I will send to you. Yeah. The rules were that the songs have to be in a horror movie that's set during the summer. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But it's just been the thing that always fascinates me. I don't know if it's because I grew up in Georgia. Um, but 
there's the movie that led me to Friday the 13th called The Prey that I saw. God, I had to have been five years old. I caught it on TV and it terrified me. It just messed me up. I think Arrow's finally putting out. Maybe they did already or they're about to. Rob G just did. Um, I was in dad zone, so I couldn't go contribute to the uh, um, to the track with Rob. But but he's got a commentary track on it coming out. And if you guys haven't seen that movie, um, I highly recommend it because it's set in the woods. It's about some a, a couple, two couples that go camping and then they come across something really unpleasant. And the end of that just fucked me up uh, as a kid when I saw it. And it led me to down the path of like <clears throat> the idea. I think part of it is, you know, it's like the the hot and cold, the peanut butter and jelly of it. You know, camp's supposed to be a safe place. When I was a kid, people still went to camp. Like you didn't have to be rich to go to camp. And so camp's supposed to be a safe place. But when you go there, you hear campfire stories. And to me, Friday, the Friday franchise, at least up until actually probably till Jason takes Manhattan up. So I would include part seven in that. We're still these sort of campfire stories. They're certainly Mm -hmm. simpler when you've got for the first four and then things start Mm -hmm. sort of extrapolating from there. But I just always, that was sort of the ambition is like tell campfire stories. Um, Well, I I can imagine the YMCA being really pissed off during the eighties. I mean, just just like God screwed up, screwed up beaches. I mean, in the 80s, you know, you have nonstop Friday 13th films. You know, you have The Burning with Richard Stevens' balls hanging out before his fingers cut off. I mean, Yeah, I didn't these... know what vitamin E was for. I just heard him keep talking about Was it vitamin E, vitamin B? I yeah. don't know. It was boner vitamin, right? <laughs> it was boner vitamins. That H-A. movie was amazing until the end. AJ, I think you said something pretty interesting a, a couple of minutes ago. You talked about well, being in the dad zone and... yeah pulling back like what your kids can watch and at the same time like when we were about 10 11 years old like we were sneaking out and seeing these really hardcore horror movies for the first time yet now that we're all dads we want to somewhat shield our kids from that like this is the friday the 13th movie i watch with my daughter who's nine um and i'm doing yes so you know what the thing about that the thing about that is is I, i was trying to like unpack it right like figure out what it is because for my parents um they were super religious and this was coming on the tail end of satanic panic and and so and especially there was a series of murders when i was a child in atlanta called the uh, atlanta child murders Mm -hmm. so there was a guy going around killing kids that were roughly my age and so i came up in and i grew up in an apartment complex so it it there was it just was this thing where it was like stranger danger was a very real thing. Um, my friend that I watched this movie with both the guys pulled up in a van and attempted to abduct us when we were about the same time that we went to camp. And you know what? It wasn't even that big of a story. The cops didn't even show up. Like that was just how it was. And so my parents didn't want me to watch smut. I think they didn't want me to, they thought it was wrong. And, um, they couldn't have known. I've talked to them so many times about it since given my chosen profession, because, you know, I've, I've, I've been saying for like 15 years that I know that a lot of actors, they end up in horror, but it was very much my, it was my choice. It was what I wanted. When someone asked me what I wanted to do, it was like, I want to make horror movies. Um, I want to act in horror movies. And so it was always 
it was always the destination for me. I wanted to make them. I wanted to write them. I wanted to act in them. I wanted to watch them. And what I figured out, I was like, why am I feeling this way where I don't want my kid? I want to control what my kid watches. And it's not from a place of morality at all, really. It's from a place of when we were kids, we got to have this discovery, right? Like we got Mm -hmm. to, like, it was hard to find, it was so hard for me and my buddy to find Predator 2. I spent six months trying to find that on DHS. And so when there were things that we liked, we had to, one of our friends had to find it and we'd all go over to their basement, right? And we'd watch it 10 times in a row and we had to sneak them. And today with the internet and with social media, like I don't see my, it's going to be very difficult for my child to get to have a childhood. They're going to not get to experience some of the stuff that we did. You know, I was telling Darby about when I was a kid, if I wanted to know something, I had to go to the library and, and to her, the library is where she goes and people read her stories. And I was like, no, yeah. I used to have to go there like a little bit older than you. And I did use this thing called a microfish. And I would have to, and they would have, I remember asking for like three Christmases in a row for a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, mm-hmm. because that's what you used. If you wanted knowledge, that's where you had to go. Yeah. And, um, and now it's just on somebody's phone or it's just on TV. And I want, um, I want my kid to be able to discover that, you know, you're talking about like protecting what they watch. Like I want to make sure that my house, like I'm certain that we're going to be moving out of this house by the time my kid gets a little bit older. And it's so that she can have the opportunity to sneak out. Now I'm going to try to stop her and I'm going to try to catch her, but that's, you know, like when I was a kid, that was like, that was like the Holy grail like successfully sneaking out of my uh, staff sergeant Marine Corps dad's house to go meet up with friends when I was Mm -hmm. in, you know, fifth grade. That was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And I, I want her to be able to experience those things. I want her to be able to remember the time. I don't want it to just be sensory overload. You know, like it seems to me like a lot of people like myself included can fall into that habit today of just ingesting media, just data just comes at us. Like I'll have my phone out, I'll have the laptop open, I'll have the TV on, and I'm not paying attention to anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I want her to be able to figure out, she's probably going to want to make movies. Um, her mom makes movies and her grandparents wrote Swamp Thing. They were big into EC comics. And I want her to be able to discover her voice with that. And I want her to be able to find stuff. I have My main roles are like, there's some that she can't, like she already knows, she turned five like like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And she already knows that there's movies she's not allowed to watch with anybody, but me for the first time. Mm-hmm. And she can tell you what the names of them are. That's um, great. And it's, it's just because I'm like, you can't watch, you can't watch Halloween without dad. You can't watch jaws without dad. You can't watch Friday the 13th part two or part four or part six without dad. You can watch the other ones. I don't care, but you can't watch two, four and six without me the first time. Well, you know, you, you, were, you were speaking on how uh, you want her to kind of sneak out and experience those things. And I feel like these days, a lot of the magic that we all uh, experienced growing up is lost. Even with mm-hmm. things like going to the, the movies, you know? Mm-hmm. It used to be when I was a kid, I'd go to the movies and I had no idea what I was going to watch with the trailers. And that was part of the experience, almost as profound as the actual film I was going to watch. You know, I didn't know yeah. what Predator, I didn't know what the first Predator was, but when I went to see Revenge of the Nerds 2, 
and it was playing with it. You know, I watched both of them, and it changed my life. These days, you yeah. know every single thing by the time you get to the theater. But, like, my son, Dexter, knows more about certain movies than I do, and it's, like, the genre that I write about for a living. Like, my it, daughter is eight years old, and she gave me the... She's never seen the Purge movies, but she spit, like, the plot to the Purge movies out, and I'm like, where the hell are you hearing this? Like, we have not watched those, and... She's like, oh, I just hear things. And I'm like, yeah. You know what's, you know what's deeply frustrating to me is that my daughter is not <clears throat> afraid of Michael Myers at all. Hmm. And when I saw well, – the reason is is because <clears throat> she has like – you know, when you're, when you're in a non-traditional sort of family setup, you have a lot of people that you call aunts and uncles mm-hmm. that aren't blood, blood relation. And you have a lot of people that you call – grandma and grandpa and they aren't necessarily you know like one set of grandparents lives in kansas and another set my my parents live in georgia and so there's people that are out here that she calls papa so she has a papa george and it just so happens that's george p wilbur and so (laughs) she sees whenever she sees michael myers she thinks that that Papa George is under the mask, so she doesn't see him as particularly threatening. That's going to change as she gets older, because when she was a little kid, um, she loved, when she was a little little child, she loved what we do in the shadows. I won't let her watch it now, because now she can contextualize it, and it's a little bit different. But stuff didn't really scare her back then. This fall was the first time that things started really scaring her, and it was stuff that wasn't even scary. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to turn her off to this. I don't want her to have a complex. That's really what it boils down to, which is like, I want her to start discovering these things when she's ready. I don't want to force this stuff on her. But yeah, she doesn't, she's like, she knows when I, cause when I said Halloween, she's like Michael Myers, Papa George. And I was like, well, he's not Michael Myers in that one. And she understands that. I mean, she went and saw him at like monster Palooza. And so she met like six Michael Myers. <laughs> and so it's like, like just walking around. And so to her, Michael Myers is like um, the mall Santa Clauses. There's a real Santa Claus, but the mall ones are fake. And, <laughs> and there's a real Michael Myers, and that's, that's George P. Wilbur. Mm-hmm. And all the other ones are faking it. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've, I feel like um, I should probably be talking about Jason Lives. I kind of like when our podcasts go in these, because I think, you know, like I actually – these are the kind of conversations people are not having around the movie. And I think like what we're doing is you kind of contextualize the movie and what it means to you. I mean, last week we, we discussed a new beginning, which is one of the lower films in the series for me, but that episode ended up being, I think one of the like deepest episodes, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's, no, like this is exactly what we're we're going for. And also, I mean, isn't it interesting how things come back around? You know, like not just in terms of like pop culture, but things get constant reappraisals. And it, you know, much in the way that like all of a sudden my kid likes wearing '80s clothes, which freaks me out. Um, at the same time, like '80s culture is big. I think that moment's passed. We're probably going to be back into the '90s here in a minute. God, I and hope that, so. that 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 terrifies me. I'm gonna have to grow my sideburns back out um but she like similarly i always i had an opinion about new beginning and i kind of assumed that it was the standard opinion about a new beginning and then a few years back i think i first started hearing about someone like beating the drum for a new beginning i think it was like phil blankenship 
um, started talking about how it was his favorite one. And I was like, you're high as hell, man. That's wedged between two perfect movies. What's wrong with you? Jason isn't even in that one. And I started arguing with him. And then I noticed that people have come around to like, there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that will list a new beginning is I, I'm like Jerry. I, it's, it's a minor one for me. Um, there's this almost sort of like sleazy uh, 42nd street vibe to it. Um, that's different to me than a lot of, than the camp set ones. Mm-hmm. There's just a different vibe to it that always seemed like a, to me, that seems more of a right turn, not just that Jason's not in it, but if you're talking like visually and aesthetically, it seems like more of a right turn to me than Jason mm-hmm. lives did in terms of the franchise. And obviously they were trying to like w- what they thought in their mind was right the ship because it was the first time that they got a diminishing return instead yeah. of it getting bigger, 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 bigger. Suddenly there was one that didn't do as well as the last one. Um, well, that was, so, also, uh, that was also the point in the series where you could tell like Mancuso and company, they were kind of over being known as like the Friday 13th yeah. guys. I mean, they all wanted to do their own thing and it's, it's kind of like, and I don't want to get the star Wars fanboys after me because that is brutal, but it's kind of like after the prequels, you could kind of tell that George Lucas ended up hating his own creation, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and so, I mean, I, I understand why they would want to kill Jason off, but, I mean... Well, I, also, I, you, you paint yourself... You get to a point where, like, it was a... For the franchise to live, they had to kill him be, so that he could come back as being undead. Because yeah. it was starting to get it to be a little ridiculous, you know? And you got, like, you've hung him, you've hit him in the forehead with an axe and with a machete. Like, you've done so many things to him, and he just kind of, like, takes a nap for a little while. So it had stretched the boundaries. I think what ends up happening is it's like, like that was a very interesting thing in the late eighties when you've got like final Friday or you've got, you know, like um, you've got Jason goes to hell or you've got Freddy's dead. They were like, okay, this will get butts in seats. We're telling you that we're going to really kill this guy. We're going to kill the monster um, to sort of hopefully reclaim an interest in it. But without that happening, you never would have had Jason lives. And Tom's take on the material on like the idea of Tom getting to do a movie and he was that this is what he decided to do is I just feel like Tom should have made like 15 more movies since that one. And well, I hopefully, just hopefully he gets to make uh, uh, one more now. <laughs> yes. So one of the things when comparing part five to six is that Tom Matthews, is Tommy Jarvis brings such a different energy to the role yeah. of Tommy than we saw with John Shepard. And you get someone yeah. who's like a lot more swashbuckling, a lot more of an adventurer. At the same time, everything that happens from the beginning of part six on, every dead kid from then on, is all on Tom Matthews. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for some, it's, it's interesting that you put it that way because when you look at like when you look at part five, there's an element of it that Tommy was like this sinewy sort of, he was, he wasn't little, but he was smaller, like this, Mm -hmm. like, like boxer, like he had this build and, and Tom was a little bit, a little bit more all American. Mm -hmm. It was was like a really solid and, and Tommy was ostensibly one of the least interesting characters in Jason lives. Like, it was him and Jason, and that's how it was going to be. But we saw mm-hmm. all these other people throughout it. and But there's still these moments. His ability to go in and out of broad performance and then 
heightened realism. There's some stuff, you know, like, I don't know. I think it's a really, I think it's a really underrated performance from him mm-hmm. because he has to be able to anchor the tone. Right. And yeah. the tone is something that Tom nailed so hard because again, it could have gone into something that was just people laughing the whole time. Like I get pissed. I don't go to a lot of screenings anymore of old movies. The reason I don't is because I can't handle the audience. I don't believe in watching things with a sense of irony. I don't Mm -hmm. believe in so bad. It's good. I hate that shit. Mm -hmm. Like I want to go enjoy the movie. And so, um, but I'm also incredibly judgmental about what people are laughing at. (laughs) So I'll be like, Mm -hmm. it's not appropriate to laugh at that. You're laughing at the movie. Fuck you. Don't laugh at the movie. You can laugh with the movie, but don't you dare. Don't you dare laugh at that choice. Well, that's that's why I'm terrified. I'm terrified of of seeing uh, Halloween on the big screen for the first time. It's my favorite movie of all time, but I've stayed away from that because I'm going to fucking stab someone if they laugh during that movie. I don't think anyone would laugh at that one. No. Well, I mean, at the same time, last year, my wife and I saw Hereditary, and people were cracking up that entire movie. Like, people are just weird these days. So I think there's a difference, though, there. I think with a movie like Hereditary, people often use laughter as a defense mechanism when they're so yeah. scared they break out in laughter. Because I noticed the same thing in Hereditary 2 with a couple audiences. There was one moment when the girl next to me, when she saw um, uh, Tony Collette's character, like, clinging to the wall just in the shadows when she first noticed her she was like oh fuck no and the crowd broke out into laughter but it was that very nervous like yep this is like scaring the shit of us right now mm-hmm. yeah there's the there's the intention there's that one there's the intentional laughter i remember when we were um and this has nothing to do with jason lives but when we were um doing your next um i have a monologue at the end of that movie. And it's a, and the movie we did before um, that I did with Simon and Adam, we didn't do any of the written dialogue it for that movie. We basically took like the structure and Simon was great about it. Like we took the structure of it and basically you have a bunch of people that were like improv based performers um, in there. People that had worked on Mumblecore. I was a trained actor, but I've also done a lot of improv comedy and stand up. And so I'm used to, I enjoy, if everybody knows how to do their job, I enjoy having a very dedicated outline and knowing what the emotional beats are that we're going to get and then sort of letting her rip. You know, we get one that we know we can use for the cut and then see where it goes. And we did that a lot with the movie before your next so much so that when we did your next, like I promised Simon, I was like, I'm going to say exactly everything that you wrote. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut any dialogue. And so I learned this monster of a monologue and then it came time to shoot it. And I was like, Hey, Simon, um, I feel like there's this moment, like, I feel like we need to lean into the absurdity of this character a little bit here. So I have some ideas for adding some dialogue and he was gracious about it and was cool with it. And, and he asked me why. And I was like, I feel like if this movie comes out and people watch it like at a festival or they watch it in a movie theater, there's we're we're committing to how asinine Crispin is by like 85 percent. And I think that we need to go to 100 percent because then it will give the audience a moment to sort of respond. Um, and they let me do it. And it ended up having that moment sort of that you're talking about, like literally I was sitting, I can't remember where I was. We were watching it 
and I have this line in it where I, I, that I added, which is like, I'm talking to, to Sharni's character about like, I'm just so out of such cognitive dissonance, like with everything going on around me. And I'm still talking about working it out, us being together. And Mm -hmm. I added this line about, about an engagement, you know, like, I feel like we need to really go for it. And so that when that moment hit in the theater and I say, you know, like maybe an engagement, literally I heard it. Oh, hell no. (laughs) Huge. Like, and I was like, yep, that's what I wanted. That's what we were, that's what we needed to get. And I think that filmmakers attempt to have those moments in it. And then there's other ones that are like so terrifying that you like, I laugh. I still laugh in 28 days later. I still laugh at a moment in there and it's because it scares me. And no matter what, it's always going to scare me. There's this one little moment where he goes into the church and at the beginning and he's like, hello. And one dude's head pops up with his mouth open. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. So that moment is that moment, like what you're talking about in hereditary, I think is what, it's what I had with, with 20 days later in that moment where I just, if you, if I was standing up, I would step back, you know, Mm -hmm. like, even in, they do it successfully sometimes in non-horror, like um, Spike Lee, Summer of Sam, when the dog says, I want you to kill, kill, kill. Yeah. I was watching that in in um, Times Square the weekend that it came out. And literally a dude in the row in front of me, when that dog started talking, got up and stood in the aisle. He didn't leave, but he got up out of his seat and stood in the aisle. And I think that a version of that when you're watching it is to laugh at it. But I also think that there's this sort of too cool for school subculture of people that I don't think they even really like horror movies. They just talk. They just wear the T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they, they're really there for the social element of it. Like a lot of film festivals these days, they're not really about watching movies. They're about the party that happens in between them or while the movies are screening. And I think that a lot of those people don't even watch the movies. So then when they end up sitting down to watch them, they're looking at them in this sort of patronizing, condescending fashion. They're not really plugged in anyways, so that you get that laughter, especially in a place like L.A. where I live. Like when you go to the New Bev, like people laugh at Black Christmas as though there's some something wrong with that movie. Like they laugh at stuff that happens in it. And I'm like, that movie's super that it, that movie is not a fucking comedy. You're laughing. You're laughing like there was a mistake made here and there wasn't a mistake made. You know? I think. Part of that might be there's such a transgressiveness to some of the dialogue in that movie that modern movies just don't go for. They just won't tip that line. That to yeah. hear that, to hear that now, you're like, because you're just not exposed to it with modern film. Um, unless you're really going deep into the underground, it's like you almost have no other other reaction you can do. I do think a movie like Jason Lives, though allows you to poke a little bit of fun with it in terms of that's what's beautiful about it that's what's beautiful because they're with they're with you so it it frees you to laugh at the moments and there's still scary stuff Mm -hmm. but i mean it it, there's just a the other thing is like jason lives is (laughs) it's just funny to say about a guy in a hockey mask that kills teenagers um it's so good natured it's not it's not cynical it's it's not scoffing at its target audience. It's not above itself. It's exactly what it is. And it's letting you know, hey, we know what this is. We're all here together. You know, it, it has my favorite bit of editing in any of the movies in it. Um, the moment with a caretaker 
goes like, what do you think oh. I am, a fart head? And it immediately yeah. smash cuts to like a hundred kids going, yeah! Like yeah. it's impossible. Well, I, I think a lot of that comes from uh, Tom's background in comedy. I mean, he was yeah. an accomplished writer on the Dick Van Dyke show. I mean, this guy had such yeah. a huge history and a mime. with that. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so to me, like a mime requires so much control right and his there's there's so i i think there's so much control in jason lives i and uh, like he knows that the timing of it is impeccable mm-hmm. in, in every moment like you know to be listening for to go back to the caretaker you know to be listening for the bottle to break and when you don't hear it you're like oh shit mm-hmm. you know well, I, he Tom knows exactly what he's doing, and I think out of any of the Friday Thirteenth films, he's the one director that he kind of. And I, I hate to use the term "rising above" because I loved this series with a passion. But Jason Lives is the movie where, I mean, like you guys said, you know exactly what you're getting, and it just it fires a hundred percent of the time. Like it's yeah. just solid front to back. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned earlier that you think Jason Goes to Hell has the most quotable stuff. But when it comes to comedy, I mean, Court and his, uh, you know, this is great. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can watch that scene on repeat. Like, my son, uh, he quotes that at least two or three times a week. Like, like This baby really jamming. <laughs> this like, is great. Yeah. The shot... The, the, mm-hmm. the, but the photography too like that everything that you're talking about like obviously i agree with but in that sequence the way that his eyes dart up the cut away to the rearview mirror and then the cut back and then the camera following his head as it goes yeah. down that is some crazy solid visual filmmaking and a lot of that stuff doesn't exist in some of the other like franchise films because that's an element that the, there can be departments where there's lots of times, like I, as an example that I would give, with, let's talk about New Blood. I love that movie, but I didn't know that a lot of people don't. And as a grown up now, like knowing that the date of that movie was announced and that Beekler had to like come up with a story and figure out where to shoot it. how to, I know how the sausage is made. I know how long it takes to make a movie. And when you've got one that has that many visual elements, plus you've got a guy that's got to get in and out of makeup because that mask is coming off like two thirds of the way through the film, um, that he was able to do anything remotely coherent with that movie is a real credit to, to him. But at the same time, a lot of like indie genre films or a lot of genre films from the eighties, they had a very limited window to get it done. They knew they had to get it out at a certain amount of time. So there's things that there isn't as much care taken with. It's more like set up wide, medium, close, reverse, move on. And Tom's photography in Jason Lives is not like that at all. In fact, like one of the only other ones that has anything like that for me is like part two. And it's and it's not the whole thing. It's like that sequence where Jenny's running around the car and hides behind the Volkswagen. Mm-hmm. And then you see Jason. It's a continuous shot. You see Jason coming up, running up the pillowcase. And then they have to run around the car. Like, there's a few stuff like that peppered throughout the franchise. But they're all over the place in Jason Lives. You have that wonderful shot, too, of Jason tracking Megan when she's walking through yeah. the cabin, checking on the kids. And it's like, you know, I think yeah. you had said before, like, Jason is not necessarily scary all the time in this movie. 
But oh, like I just love that shot in you're just thinking what's going on in his head at that moment. It's wonderful. Yeah, that that getting to watch him hunt, which we very rarely get to do, right? We usually see the, the moment, the kill moment. But seeing the hunt, and there's a sort of peculiarity. Although, you know, Kane's Jason was, like, scary. But what I liked about CJ, especially when you're talking about that, that sequence, is, like, how upright and straightforward he walked, you yeah. know? And I also loved, to me, Jason was almost like a kid again in Jason Lives because literally it looks like he has a moment of surprise every time he pulls a body part off. He's like, I know I can pop their eyes out, but I didn't know Mm. that I could just pull somebody's arm off. Like Mm -hmm. he's discovering throughout the film that he's like this, he's got this, he's got these new upgrades. (laughs) He's like, yeah, wow. Yeah. I'm super strong now. It's the first time Jason's not really bound by, traditional human anatomy and what you know he'd be capable like we know he's super strong and super resilient but now because he's risen from the dead he's taken that to a factor of four basically mm-hmm. and there's these little moments that are different than the other ones i'm sorry i'll just say this and then i'll stop talking to like okay. also in most of the other films you see jason appear out of the water or he's standing out like on a dock or standing on the land and someone's in the water, right? In Jason Lives, you watch him just decide to go take a very normal walk into the water. And he link, they link, they keep cutting back to him as he's getting into it, you know? You never see him really swim. He just decides, I'm going to walk out there in the middle of the lake and I'm going to kill that dude because he's mm-hmm. a real pain in my ass. And you don't get to see that necessarily in the other ones, you know? Like he's a, an aha like you see it, they do a little bit because they let Derek go a little bit more brutal with it because of his abilities as a, as a physical actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and also he was alive in that one. But there's this zombie Jason as he evolved. Like it was just, it was very interesting to me to well, see. That ends, uh, it has that ending. And I, I think it's one of my favorite endings of any movie of all time. I, I mean, just the potential of what we could see with Jason is at its finest when Tommy is in the water. You know, he has the gasoline all around, there's fire, and then Jason pops up. Like, it's such an epic feeling moment that I think it was never captured to that extent in the films that followed. Yeah, and then with him just being chained under there and just pulling, he's still trying to get whatever he gets. So he's not like, it's not like when they, Freddy versus Jason is the one that I have a hard time with because of my love for Jason. Freddie was great in it, but Jason was, he was wearing a painter smock. Um, and he was super afraid of the water. And the, the Jason that was in Jason Lives was not afraid of the water. He was like irritated that he had a chain around him. But he was like, okay, this is where we're at. I can't, like, I'm just going to keep trying. I'm going to try to grab this guy. And I love that. I love all of the shots that they had in the water. And the shot too like that you're talking about right after he jumps out when the boat breaks and you watch yeah. them go down together is amazing. Yeah. And I think too, what I love about the way this movie is set up and where it climaxes in that Tommy and Jason fight. I mentioned this when we interviewed Tom, it reminded me like I'm a huge fan of like 1980s WWF wrestling. And yeah. The way the movie is structured 
it's very much like a wrestling feud where you have like your two protagonists come together at the beginning of the movie they have their conflict then you keep them apart for basically 80 minutes there's no jason and tommy interaction so you're building and building and building up until that ending and like tommy calling jason a pussy Jason reacting to that. It's like, okay, now you have like your WrestleMania type of moment. Like it's classic pro wrestling booking and it works so well here. Yeah, I mean he called him Maggot Head. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Maggot Head. Uh, I'm curious if that was an improvised line of dialogue. Well what <laughs> one of the things about Jason Lives that has always stood out to me, uh, it kind of goes back to the final chapter. I've always said that like the final chapter is the Friday 13th film where we get the Jason we know. First film, he's barely in it. Second one, they really don't know what they're doing with the character. You know, he gets a mask halfway through the third. The fourth is like where it is Jason. Yeah, we Whereas, now have backstory. Yeah, that. And But when it comes to Jason Lives, I feel like it's the last film that really gives us that Jason. I love Kane. And he's he's awesome, but with Jason Lives, it's just, it feels unique, and it almost feels unique in the sense that that was the movie that they had complete faith in again. You know, they let Tom do whatever he wanted to do with that film. And starting yeah. with Seven, when you know Barbara Sack started producing, she hated the series. She wanted to make yeah. a Friday Fifteenth movie that would win an Oscar. You know, and I feel like Jason Lives has that kind of youthful energy that maybe Mancuso and all those had at the beginning of the series again. Yeah, and and also there's there's aesthetic things that that help that right where it's like Jason still has a, a more or less regular person build mm-hmm. in Jason lives and he stops running. That was what was scary to me about final chapter, like when I was a kid and they get up to the top of the steps and he's like juking back and forth about yes. like which way is he gonna run. Mm-hmm. That scared the shit out of me, mm-hmm. and then suddenly in Jason lives, Jason's just walking and he's like, I'm gonna get there. It doesn't matter because he no longer requires sleep or food or anything. So he's just going to, I'm going to walk there until I get there and I'm not going to stop. And then when Kane came on the scene, such a big guy, such a broad guy that it started, he, he's a bit more like a monster. And to me, monsters are always less scary for whatever reason. Even when I was a kid, monsters were a little less scary. I was never scared of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. That wasn't, the guy that scared me because monsters I guess because it's like they come set you know that they're supposed to be scary but what scares me is the ones that you're not expecting you know and I think some of that had to do with growing up in the 80s again with this whole like child abduction being a very real real fear serial Mm -hmm. killers seemed to to be everywhere back then Um, and you know like knowing about Ted Bundy when you're a child because he's on death row and hearing about the day that he's going to, you like, as you're growing up with all that stuff, that is going to be scarier to me than a big unstoppable force. Right. What was so scary to me about Michael Myers, especially in that first one, is because you don't know why he's doing anything. He's completely expressionless. And there isn't, like, he doesn't seem to get agitated. There's just this guy that's going around killing people like i think chris rock said it in a special years ago is like whatever happened to crazy just for crazy's sake mm-hmm. and that always terrifies me more whenever you start getting into long franchises you start having to explain and i think that that's what is going to be a natural 
negative response to like final Friday, all of a sudden there's this Creighton Duke guy, all of a sudden Jason has relatives, all of a sudden it's not actually Jason. There's a serpent, not a worm, a satanic serpent that <laughs> somehow gets into other people and, and that's just not going to be as scary. And there, there's always seemed to be a redesign too. And so if you're talking about redesigns, like I really loved the design of Jason and new blood, but I didn't like any of the design afterwards. Mm -hmm. It started getting to this thing that started to look like an action figure. Um, well, there's, like there's said, that whole, like, like, there's that decayed look in Beekler's film. And I think it, it's kind of like the, you know, accumulation of every film before. You Whereas, see it all on him. Exactly. Every single thing from every film before, it's there. Whereas everything after is just like, what can we do with Jason now to make right. him look, you know, scary? Yeah, so now, now he's actually just a little boy inside of, like, I was so confused that even in, in 91, even when I saw it when it came out, I was so confused by Jason Takes Manhattan. I was like, what is, I don't understand. There's Toxic Sludge and he's the Toxic Avenger. That's what, and inside of him is a little scared boy. And it looks like bad slud. It looks like bad paper yeah. mache is what it looks like when you see yeah. him without his mask on there. Where before that, I thought the unmasking stuff was always like the really fun kind of stuff to look at. But by that point, I was like, eh, not so much. And Tom much. did that shit right at the beginning, huh? Mm -hmm. And you know what else I liked? I, for me, here's where like he's got to get the mask back, right? Whenever yes. we have these iconic characters, they have to get their shit back. Um, because they can't just do what they did with the first ones and be like, oh, okay, well, now he doesn't have a pillowcase, so now he's going to find something else. We won't show his face uh, for a while until he shows, until he pulls the mask up mm -hmm. himself. Um, mm -hmm. But I loved the reasoning. I love why Jason got his hockey mask back in Jason Lives. That was, I'm, I'm a fan of the remake, but that was one area that I didn't, I didn't like as much. I actually would have been fine with him staying in the pillowcase. I know they can't do that because of the franchise, mm -hmm. but I would have been down with them keeping him in a pillowcase for all of the remake. Yeah. Like, let that be another thing. Like, you don't have to put the Joker in the first Batman movie, you know? Right. Like, you can you can warm up to that. Um, but I loved that Tom that it was a symbol to Tommy and that he, he threw it back, mm -hmm. you know, that he was literally being done with it. And again, it's this idea that Tommy is really responsible for everything that goes on at, um, from after the 10 minute point of that movie. I feel yeah. like you just really hate Tommy Jarvis, though. No, I do not hate <laughs> Tommy Jarvis. I know, I Play a lot of Friday the 13th game. Everybody hates Tommy and that. <laughs> I, you no, know, we're, tr no. we're trying to do a uh, group Friday the 13th game with some of our listeners, except I am so terrible at that game that I think we're going to lose listeners because I'm just like the worst at that game. Like, if I ever get Jason in a group game, um, Everybody lives, basically. I get zero kills. You know, what's funny is I just bought that game, like, I think less than a month ago. I think I've played it twice, and I'm, I'm just so awful at that game. But it's, it's so, like, it's so great to be able to experience all these movies through that video game, like the map, yeah. every little thing. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's, I wish we would have had that growing up. I mean, we had, like, the Nintendo games, which were, like, so bad. But, you know, it was Jason, so obviously you needed to play it. I'll always remember, yeah. and I said it at the time, I'll always remember the summer of 2017 because that was the summer that I got an Xbox. I had, I'm, like, not a big gamer, 
and the newest I had like up until two years ago, I had um, a Nintendo 64, a Super Nintendo Mm -hmm. and my all originals and my original NES that my parents got me in 1988. I still have it. It's in our living room. It's still hooked up. Um, But I've been told about Friday the 13th. So I literally bought an Xbox one just so that I could play that game. And I had some friends. Um, what was great about it is that I had no experience with that sort of stuff with like online gaming. It seemed really weird to me. Um, but my friends, like some of my Austin buddies that make movies down there, and then some LA people, we got together almost at least a couple nights a week and we would play for like 90 minutes and all summer long. So I'll always remember 2017 as the summer where the lights turn off in the living room after my kids asleep and the way that that game starts up, got the headphones on and it was like being inside the movies. Like I really, I really loved it despite all the glitches or the freezing. And also you could really see people's worst instincts as human beings through that game. <laughs> like there are people that you just boot off. You're like, I can't play with you, Scott Weinberg. You're yeah. too, you get too, you get too mad when I kill you. That's You're vaping way game. too much while you play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they start telling stories, and you're like, like my favorite person to play that game with was uh, was my buddy Yarvo. Um, he just did. He just had a movie come out actually, uh, Brightburn. Oh yeah. The, so oh, okay. I was playing with Yarvo, and Yarvo was always playing by his laptop, and obviously we can't see each other. But whenever he was Jason, and he would he would morph to somebody, he would have music set in his living room. So that you'd be sitting there hiding and all of a sudden scary ass music would start playing and you'd be like, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? And then all of a sudden Yarvo as Jason busts in oh and it was just God. like a real special or it's like really, so really was... um, unacceptable, like really inappropriate shit that he would find on the so internet. Was... All of a sudden someone's having a really gross conversation and you're like, what is that? Where's that coming? What is that? And then Jason busts through the wall. You're like, ah, oh, shit, it's Yarvo. And whenever Yarvo was playing a counselor is before they fixed the, before they nerfed the game out. Yarvo people didn't want to play with him. I did though, because I laughed at how mad people got at Dave for this. But whenever he was a counselor, he would always, he'd have people, they'd be like, yeah, we're going to get together. We're going to do this. Let's go do the car. And Jason would appear, right? And Yarvo's a counselor. Yarvo would turn and shoot one of the other counselors. And then he'd run away and he'd say, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's like, oh, it was an accident. And he'd just sometimes decide if he was getting bored with the game, he'd turn around and just start killing all the counselors. He'd start friendly killing everybody. People hated Yarvo for that, but I love playing that game with him. I love the idea of him conducting psychological warfare in people while playing. <laughs> so he did. So he did. I haven't gotten to see Brightburn yet, but I feel like I don't need to because I just played Friday the 13th with him one entire summer. You know, Based on what you just said, yeah, that sums up that movie. <laughs> you just, and I, I mean that in such a complimentary way. He is a, a bit of a nihilist. He wasn't playing by the rules at all when we were playing that game. And you just all of a sudden hear someone talking about how to debone a chicken. He would find a, a tutorial on the internet about deboning a chicken and you'd be sitting there and there's the music and it's quiet. And all of a sudden you hear somebody, well, now what you got to do is you got to get in there and you got to just take the wing and you're like, what the fuck is that? 
He'd be terrified. It was terrifying. He never knew when it was going to happen. He'd just all of a sudden start. Or he also synced up one time the um, the disco music from part three. And mm. it was before there was all these, before the Jasons started having their own thing. You know, this is before the mm. NECA Jason appeared. And yeah. so you're sitting there and all of a sudden, you're like, what the fuck is, oh no, Jarvo. And, and you could see in the game, people would just start scattering. Nobody wanted to fight Jason. They'd just all start running when they'd hear that music. Yeah, <laughs> it's sheer terror. Sheer terror. That's beautiful. Hey, I don't we know have what that has to do with Jason flesh. Lives, but yeah. Like I said, we tend to go in tangents and circles here, and I think that's a good thing. Like, I think our listeners know at this point, if they're looking for like a beat-by-beat plot breakdown of a movie they've seen a hundred times, they're not going to get it. Well, do, you they the, going... Uh, do you remember the part two episode with uh, Al White, the director of Starfish? Like, he asked that right at the beginning. Okay, so are you guys going to go like scene-by-scene? Scene? And we were like, no, sorry. We got in advance. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple questions from our listeners. Should we try to answer these? Yeah, let's do it. So we got from Jason, uh, hashtag Team Mothra. He wanted to know, since it's the end of the Jarvis trilogy, who was the best actor, who was the, or who was our favorite actor to portray Tommy Jarvis? Oh, Lord. See, I mean, mine's easy. Mine's easy. I don't, like, it's not, a, it's not if you're asking me. I can also be quiet. This is about you guys. No, no, no. You're you're included. Oh, Tom Matthews, without a doubt. I think Tom I Matthews all three is of them. the best. I think Tom Matthews is the best, but I think nostalgia purposes, I mean, growing up, I kind of felt like the Corey Feldman portrayal yeah. of Tommy Jarvis. You know, I think all of us were that kid. Uh, but yeah. as an adult, like, having experienced Corey Feldman in person once or twice, like, you, you know, I'd have to go with Tom yeah. Matthews. Yeah, yeah. So, so I have not had the pleasure, apparently, of meeting Corey Feldman. Um, his, I gotta go with. I, I imagine, I have to. I'm gonna go with Corey Feldman as my favorite Tommy, though, because that moment when he is jumping up and down at the bed for seeing Joe oh, the first say. time yeah. is like yeah. I was. We are all Tommy Jarvis in that moment. I don't care. You know, every twelve-year-old boy has experienced that joy at some point. Um, so well, I think I also, overall, John Shepard did a hell of a job too. It's just yes. to me it, that just never felt like Tommy Jarvis uh, at all. Like he's no, great. I also was confused actor, about. But... I was confused about the time period. I was confused yeah. about the time jump because there's this little boy, and then also all of a sudden there's this guy that needs to shave. He looks like a grown man. He doesn't look like a boy. And I was conf- so it had nothing to do with him, but I was confused, especially because they had Corey in that little dream sequence at the beginning yeah. of yeah. New Beginning. So I was very confused, and all of a sudden there was this guy, and he, he, lots of times when a character's in another franchise, like goes through, and like I'll use Sarah Connor as an example. Obviously, she's going to be different in Judgment Day, and you got to see how that changed her. But they were aided in the fact that it was the same actor. And so going from this bubbly kid and to suddenly being this like karate warrior, which I understood, but there was just there's just something there that had nothing to do with Shepard that had to do with like the thematic angle in the movie that I would 
his performance I thought was great, but Tom Matthews to me, like for obvious reasons, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's my guy. That's my Tommy. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, if the part five arc was well received and Tommy became the quote unquote new Jason, how would the series be different? Could it have continued for another two, three, four movies? No, I feel like uh, maybe one more and that mm-hmm. would have just been it. I mean, I love Halloween 3, but I can totally understand why people tuned out after that. Until they yeah, only that. because it's a one-off. That's only because yeah. like we like it now. I remember as a kid, I think I liked it, but I just liked anything that I was watching that was a horror movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'll never forget seeing the posters for the return of Michael Myers. Like, I was like, yes, yes, yes. And it was, I feel like, if they had Tommy for another one, there would have been something. They still would have ended up being Tommy versus Jason. It just would have been Tommy, Jason versus Jason. Something would have happened for them to have to, like he would have dug him up mm-hmm. or I don't know, something, something would have happened that would have made it impossible for them to commit to him being undead. Yeah. yeah I think Jason is too iconic of a character by this point to replace him. He really is the Friday, the 13th series. So although it might've been fun, um, to see, well, actually, I don't know, because like the end of part five is so dark. Um, I'm not sure I would want to see something with Tommy as the killer. I'm kind of glad that they really threw that whole story out the window for part six. Yeah, with also still not being so disjointed, because it was clear that he was still in, in a nut house. I think is when Rorschach called it. It was like a halfway house. It was clear that he was at at a home in the beginning of part six mm-hmm. and that he had left it. Um, so they kept that, but it wasn't like he was under arrest, you know? So they were able to be like, look, it's still, it could still have happened, which was like my, yeah. So it's that thing that they decided not to do with the new Halloween movie. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is now they have all these, uh, kind of fan films coming out. I mean, there's one coming out where Tom Matthews comes back as Tommy Jarvis. Yep. Never hike alone. Yeah. I mean, I'm so interested in you know, since with like the lawsuit and everything kind of basically robbing us all of these movies, it's so refreshing to see these characters live on in like, you know, fan directed films. Yeah. And I, and I bet that all of us at some point in time in our childhoods wrote either a Halloween script or a Friday film or a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, or at least started to. Yeah, I wrote, short I, wrote story. I wrote Young Guns 6 and 7, and I don't even think there was a 3, 4, or 5. No, there wasn't, but there should have been. I would no, like you I, to send those to me. I definitely, I used to, around this time, I would like kind of like lock myself in my parents' bedroom when I was babysitting my younger sister and then pound on the door and scream, Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees or they're murdering me right now. And my poor little sister would like freak out and cower <laughs> under the bed. And then I would go and write stories about that. Um so I feel like I could talk about this movie for days. However, I need to get up in a few hours to go to work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, East Coast represent. Um, so AJ, tell me a little. You know, I'm going to nerd out here for a little moment. Like you have a movie called Maidenhead, which yeah. was the, the first movie that I got to screen in Boston. At the underground, right? Yeah. No, not bo- yeah. not the Boston Underground Film Fest. We did. Oh, you I, you actually screened it. Yeah, that's right. I, I did a little like 
monthly screening for five years. I fucking it's you and Michael Parks. Um yeah. it's almost like a um it's almost like an alternate riff on Martin and it's one of my favorite it, things. Intentional. You've done. It it was it was very much a it was very much I'm I'm sad. The the one that you screened, was it in color? I think it's black and white. Okay, because like what happened is that um the writer director, he just wrote such a great script. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had done a short of it, and I told him, um, I told him, I was like, if you ever get to make a feature of this, you know, like I'll help you produce it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we made the short, and then like two months after the short came out, the signal got into Sundance, and so the heat that came along with that allowed us to get Maidenhead going, and it was one of those things where because it was the first movie that he made. I think he wasn't confident about in once it was done. I think he wasn't confident, very confident in what the movie was. Mm -hmm. So like he went back and he would try to change things and to try to make it, I think in his mind, more people get it because you know, it's yeah, I did creep show three, but like six months later we shot the signal in 10 days and we didn't know anybody. And so that was really kind of like a first movie. We got the financing for signal. One guy wrote a $50,000 check because he heard that, the lead of the signal was the lead of universal pictures creep show three. Like literally that's how <laughs> signal got financed. He's like, Oh, okay. Well, if he's in it, then we didn't tell him that Romero and Stephen King weren't involved and that mm-hmm. it was only that we rented the lot at universal, that it wasn't a universal picture. Um, and so it, it stood to reason that like when it's your first real movie and it, gets in without knowing anybody at Sundance. And then it's the biggest genre acquisition of like a decade there. It was the biggest genre acquisition, I think, since Blair Witch. Um, at the moment, we were like, oh, shit, it all worked out. We're all fucking rich and famous now. And so when he, that was our experience, and Jim, the, the writer-director, he came to Sundance, so he saw that all happen. And um, we shot the movie like six months after Sundance, Um like 107 degrees in Austin, Texas Mm -hmm. for like a month. And, um, he, I think that the, when the movie got done, the black and white version that he finished, um, there were some technical issues in terms of like sound. It needed to have Mm -hmm. some sound correction. But other than that, I think it was a really great film. Um, I was really proud of it. And I think he got a little rattled when it started not getting in places. Mm -hmm. And so he started tweaking it. And one of the things that he did since we shot digitally, we didn't shoot on film. So he, he put it in color and started submitting it. And I was like, you, it loses everything if you put it in color, man. Like yeah. I, would, I watched black and white movies for six months leading up to it to study how different the performance is. Mm-hmm. The type of performance when something's in black and white, it has to be different than when it's in color. Um, if you're a technical performer at all. And so... I think that there were just, it kind of got lost and I think he felt a little burned about it mm-hmm. and he put up almost all of his own money too. So I don't think that it was, um, it's a shame because I think that there's, I think it's a really sweet, I think it's a nice counterculture movie. I it think is. it could have had a good home. Um, it's a heartbreaking it movie. It, it's a yeah. hard, it's, it, it's, it definitely plays against type. I remember seeing it at the New York horror film fest, um, I think it was the first time I'd ever gone to a film festival, really. And I'm like, I know we're going to, A, start doing things like this in my town, and then, B, like, this is the first movie I'm going to show. Um, like, that was the two... Those, I absolutely adored that movie. 
Thank um, you. Tell me a little bit. You have a couple things that are out this year. You have I Trap the Devil, which is out mm-hmm. on video on demand now, and also oh. you're in Satanic Panic as well, um, which is coming out this fall. Yeah, I think it's I think it's coming out either in August or September. It's going to get a theatrical release too. Oh, so cool. okay. that's rare mm-hmm. these days. Yeah, so Satanic Panic. I'm friends with Chelsea, uh, the director, mm-hmm. and I'm friends with Ted, um, one of the writers, and. I had gotten a call or no, I gotten an email saying, Hey, would you like to come do like, it's basically kind of like a cameo. And I was like, of course. And so I grew out a mustache and uh, went down to do in my mind, like what we were doing with the tone of the movie was, was not what they're making right now. Instead, it was more like a USA up all night film. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're, I think that as it's playing places, I think that people aren't making that kind of movie right now. And I think that audiences um, are, some of them really love it. And I think some are confused by it, but like, I still haven't gotten to see it. I know what happens to me in it. I was there when that happened and it was (laughs) nutty to be on set with like Mm -hmm. Rebecca Romaine and, and just some other character actors that I've admired for years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to that one coming out. I trapped the devil is one that we did like two, two and a half years ago, um, up in Wyoming and Josh, the writer director of that one, um, I kind of knew him and they sent me this script and, um, he kind of used to hassle me at CineFamily back in the day. He'd, he'd come find me at screenings and be like, yo, you're going to come be in my movie. And I was like, get out of my face. <laughs> and so, um, I got this script and I read it and I'd always Christmas horror is something that I really, really love, obviously mm-hmm. with black Christmas. And, um, just Christmas movies in general, quickly to go back to like some of the stuff that you're talking about a while back about the way that things were when we were kids versus how they are now. And what I love about 80s cinema in general is there's this magical realism where they yeah. know that it's a movie and it's not trying to be cinema verite and it's also not trying to thumb its nose at anything. Like you, mm-hmm. it believed there's this magical realm of possibility and, um, and that's what I love about Christmas movies, and that's what I love about Christmas horror. When you put them together, it's just like a really nice aesthetic to me. And so, <clears throat> I had never been to Sheridan, Wyoming, and they were really solid. They let me um, cast my friends, and we. I, I've known the other guy that was in it, Scott Poitras. I've known we went to high school together, and we were in the Signal together. And he's a really great actor. And um, for whatever reason, he didn't seem to get the same kind of attention you know like his role in the signal clark it wasn't quite as showboat as mine even though he's ostensibly he has he's the other character with the most screen time other than my character they're the and they're the opposites he's sort of the he's the vehicle for the audience he's the heart of the movie and so i wanted people to get to see what he can do um so we decided to actually switch up the roles i was going to play scott's role initially and then we were like no let's switch it um and we made this movie for very little money over two weeks in Sheridan, Wyoming. And, um, and Josh tweaked it and played with it for a while. And it's sort of like a chamber piece. It's really different. Again, I, I typically, I'm fortunate in that like a lot of the stuff that I do end up sort of taking right turns. And I had taken some extended time off doing the dad thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and while that was going on, um, had an opportunity to go away for a couple weeks and do this. So we did it. And, um, it just sort of 
dumb luck that like that's coming out. And then like lots of times with an actor and seem like there's a lot of movies, but they're really spread over three years. So it's like it did dead night and then didn't do anything for a while. And then we did, um, and then we did, I trapped the devil. And then we did, and then I did a couple of other movies, um, that haven't actually come out yet. And then satanic panic we did last fall. And then the guys I did, the guys I did dead night with, we got together to make, this sort of weird comedy that we're in the process of finishing up right now. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you never know, you know, like I'm excited for people to see, I trapped the devil and for people to see satanic panic, but you, I've been fortunate. Like I've made close to 50 movies and I would say like 45 or 46 of them have come out. Maidenhead was one that never came out. And then, you know, like Jerry has seen one called night sky that I co-wrote. Um, and it just Drives never, nuts. Drives never me nuts. Came out. I love I loved that movie so much. It's it's you never know, right? Like you never know what it is, what the thing is that's making people not want to program it at festivals. Yeah. Um, and what it especially happens is when you get filmmakers that are used to getting into places like that, um, if it doesn't, they start tweaking and sometimes tweaking the movie, I should say. I don't mean like on crystal meth. I mean like they start <laughs> tweaking stuff, and sometimes when you tweak stuff and try to trim it down, it can start to lose sort of the essence and like in Night Sky's case, it was supposed to be this real weird road picture, this like um, platonic friendship movie. And I think there was some concern when that was a little bit weird and it didn't get in to a couple of the festivals that, that there was an assumption, I think. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes filmmakers can assume that their movie is getting into a film festival. If they submit to it, they can get entitled about it. Or they can also get angry when it doesn't. And to me, I've no, it's sort of like I... When your first movie that you've made is Creepshow 3, you get kind of pickled to um, criticism. And, like, it doesn't bother – like, people liking or not liking something doesn't bother me as long as I feel like I did my job. So, like, there's a few movies that didn't get to come out. I'm real happy for Josh Lobo, the guy that did I Trapped the Devil, because that's his mm-hmm. first movie. And I'm excited to see – he has a real clear idea of the kind of vibe of stuff that he likes to do. And um, I'm – I'm interested to see what he does next. I don't, I think, I think I might be working with him again Mm -hmm. on it. I just don't know what, I can't remember if it's, if he's directing right away or if he's going to like produce. And when you're in like the independent genre world, like I'm not really an actor. That's what I'm trained to do. And that's what I do. But when I work on these, the only time that I'm really an actor, just an actor is when I'm working with Ty. The rest of the time there's, you know, like I grip on the days that I'm not acting or, you know, mm-hmm. like you're sort of like a producer getting the movie made or, or tweaking the script or, you know, crewing it. Um, that's just kind of, you wear, end up wearing a lot of hats right. in there. So I could have a whole other conversation with you about being a dad in horror. Um, <laughs> cause my, my daughter is nine and she's now like, she came downstairs when I was watching the thing and I had just put it in. And I'm like, honey, I'm not getting out of this beanbag right now. So if this movie gives you, night- <laughs> if this gives you nightmares, that's on you. Um, and she loved it. She thought it was like the greatest movie she'd ever seen. Her oh, wow. Current, current favorite is A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Um, of course it is. So I would. Congratulations on being a dad. It's the best. Little girls it is. are the, it's best. the best. It's the best. It's the best gig in the world. I need her to get about a year older, and then I'm going to harass Jerry to bring his kids down. So we can start playing horror movies at night in the backyard. Mm -hmm. 
Right? Idea. It's awesome. She wanted to do Blair Witch Project for her birthday party in the backyard. I said, nope. nope. A, not for another five or six years. And B, if you ever want to have play dates again, we cannot show things like that because your friend's parents will murder us. We'll never be able to have anyone over again. Yeah, it's weird to take your kid to preschool and their parents some of their parents have seen your movies and when your movies have some of your movies you have been a very unpleasant person in them you know <laughs> it's an interest it's an interesting it's an yeah. interesting vibe especially when your kid wears like swamp thing t-shirts to school <laughs> jerry any closing thoughts before we head out tonight no this has been wild i think this has been the most off the rails episode we've had yet and i mean that in the best of ways a lot of i'm so sorry no no i'm so happy about it actually in summation jason lives is a perfect movie concludes another episode of the pod and the pendulum thank to both of our guests tonight both tom mclaughlin chatting about his film jason lives and that very cool news that he actually has another script at the ready so hopefully we can maybe get this lawsuit figured out once and for all and get some new friday the 13th movies that would be goddamn wonderful and also thanks to aj bowen um i loved his movies for a super long time so it was kind of like a nerd out moment for me to have AJ on and he is definitely welcome back any time uh, I loved having him on definitely a different kind of conversation tonight and one that I really loved um, thanks to all our listeners and once again here's our spiel every week if you're enjoying the show drop us a line at pod and the pendulum at gmail.com or just come over and interact over on interact with us over at twitter at pod and pendulum we pretty much respond to everybody both jerry and myself uh we love interacting interacting with our listeners we got a few new reviews up this week over on itunes and thank you so much i cannot tell you guys enough how much we appreciate that um it really does help new listeners find us and you know we're seeing our numbers grow every single week and every time we get a new review um we see the numbers like spike up for a couple days which is great so please head over to itunes stitcher wherever you get your podcast and just drop us a quick five star review if you think we're worth five stars um if you think we're worth one star, maybe go have a sandwich. And what are you doing listening at the two-hour point if we're only a one-star podcast? That's ridiculous. Next week, we're coming back with Friday the 13th, Part 7, um, The New Blood. It's basically Jason meets Carrie, as you all know, and we are super excited to talk about that one. So in the meantime, have a great 4th July long weekend. Hide your pets if they get scared from fireworks, and we are looking forward to being back next week. <laughs>